JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. Want to welcome in James Boyd, covers the Colts for the Athletic. A little double duty with Jimmy <laughs> Cook earlier today. James, uh, how's everything going today, bud? It's going good. I'm enjoying the 107.5, you know, the fan fam right now. So it feels like I'm a little part of the, the family. So it feels good to be included. Man, you got the whole car wash going on today. You know? <laughs> just, just a little bit, man. Get yeah. where I fit in. <laughs> you know, uh, James and I, James Adams, JMV's producer, we were talking about metal a couple of minutes ago off air. I found out James is a metalhead. Uh, James Boyd, uh, James and James here in studio today. Uh, where do you rank metal? On a scale from 1 to 10, what is your interest level when it comes to uh, heavy metal there? It is zero. I know nothing about heavy metal except for when I was trying to lift weights in high school, honestly. And it's no disrespect to the music genre. I wish I was more out there. My dad's into more like music from all over, but I'm a, a true hip-hop rap guy. So yeah. um, I, w- I would say I don't personally like it but i'm sure it's dope for everyone else who does enjoy it what's the most random genre you like outside of rap or hip-hop i would say if you catch me with a nice country song there's always like one or two where i'm like all right this is a jam and i might be like you know having to turn it down when i go somewhere because i don't want to be seen listening to this but um i enjoy it man I, i try to make sure that i at least know the top songs that are are out there like on the charts and things like that man okay i got you so uh give me this Who would be the metal of the NFL for you? Okay, like think of it. You have zero for heavy metal. Who would be zero giant thumbs down? This team drives me crazy. (laughs) Who would be that for you? Oh, man, I don't I have to have to think about this for sure. Maybe I guess this season, maybe the Cardinals, because it's like you you just don't really um, want to watch them because they're not going to be very good. So maybe that's my perspective on them. But even then, I guess if I had to cover him for a check, I'd be all in, and that's kind of how it goes. <laughs> that's true. You know, I, I was just talking about this to begin the show is the teams that are interesting at least, right? As a fan, you want your team mm-hmm. to be good. You want them to challenge for a Super Bowl. That's obvious. But what cushions the blow if they're not that good is if they're really interesting. And for you, who covers a team – I think you would want that as well. When you look around the league, like put good to the side and you say just interesting. I know good can bleed into that, the interesting part, but if you kind of separate them as much as you can, who would you say is is really interesting even though they might not be incredibly good? The Broncos. Yeah. To me, like how much can Sean Payton – sort of salvage what happened there last season is Russell Wilson really cooked like is he done being 
a pretty good quarterback in this league or was that just a one-off and can he bounce back? So that I would say they're very intriguing because obviously they, they were in the headlines every week because of just how bad they were last season and obviously the let's ride thing that kind of got taken and, and flipped and twisted because for whatever reason, Russell Wilson just would not stop saying it despite how the season went. You know, I think it was the movie James Blackhawk Down. Mm-hmm. And I might be messing up the line exactly, but at one point someone says, I need you to give me a non-BS assessment, okay? I something along those lines. But I want that in terms of your view on the Colts. How interesting are they? Getting Anthony Richardson helps a lot, I would argue, in that department. But when you compare them to other teams in the league, at least from an interesting standpoint, where would you put them? I'd probably put them right at maybe like a C plus B. I think the general average NFL fan doesn't really care what's going on with Indianapolis because in their mind, you know, they haven't really been relevant since Andrew Luck and Peyton Manning. So I would put them right there. But from a beat writer's perspective, there's a lot to be interested about because, you know, to me, you get to see the infancy of it all and and get to see if this can be the new face of the franchise with Anthony Richardson. No, that's a good answer, man. He's James Boyd, covers the Colts for The Athletic, joining us here on The Fan. What interests you from a player perspective uh, about this Colts team beyond Anthony Richardson, which is an obvious? I think what should interest everyone in Indianapolis is what happens at cornerback. You know, it's kind of a catch-22. You You want an opportunity to play the young guys, but then you also realize how young you would be if you don't have Isaiah Rodgers in there because of his whole um, alleged violation of the gambling policy. So we should hear something, I would imagine, this month, um, obviously by next month before we get into training camp, about his status going forward. But I'm very excited to see what the Colts do, you know, when it comes to him potentially not being available going forward. And also, um, what does that mean for that room, do you go out and get a veteran or do you just stick with the young guys, Darius Rush, Julius Brents, do they get more opportunities? And then a guy like Dallas Flowers, who I talked about earlier on the fan, he's a guy who is super confident and someone who took a crazy path to the NFL, and now he's got this golden opportunity to seize the moment and potentially become a starter. Is it weird to you, James, that we don't have official word as to what's going on with Isaiah Rogers Sr., where it seems like the NFL has a decent amount of information where the bets were typically from $25 to $50. Maybe he was betting on the Colts as well. We don't know that. But it seems like they have enough information to make a determination, and yet we're still in this holding pattern. That seems awfully weird to me. Yeah, you know, he was not – he has not been officially suspended from the team. Like, he was just away from the team during – Mini camp, but again, he hasn't been officially suspended because there hasn't been a ruling in his case. But I will say this I'm not that surprised we haven't heard anything because I think they really have to vet this. Because if what's being alleged is true and he bet on Colts games, you have to then go back and see okay, did you bet on games against your own team? And if that's the case, I think that's a whole other layer of, you know, having to protect the league and things like that. So I think they really want to be thorough with this because of the amount of bets, you know, that was reported by ESPN with it being in the hundreds. And then also, as the initial story broke from Sports Handle, did this guy bet on his games and then did he bet against his own team? Because if that happened, oh, man, that's a that's a black eye for the league for sure. Man, and for him too, right? Like you're looking at former sixth round pick, 211th pick, and he was 
a starter for half the season last year, was in line to start this season. And if he's betting against his team, I, I don't think there's anything worse gambling-wise that you could do than be found out that you are betting against the team you're on. I think that would be very, 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 did I say very hard <laughs> to come back from because, I mean, we look at Isaiah Rodgers – I think he's a pretty good player. Um, nice enough dude. I don't th- have anything against him character-wise. But you wonder how many chances you're going to get if you're, a, like you said, a former six-round pick, you know, sort of a fringe starter type. We didn't even know if he was going to be a legitimate starter in the NFL. This is going to be his year to get that shot. And so you look at guys who kind of got second chances in the NFL for whatever reason, whatever they've done, talent speaks to that usually. You know, Calvin Ridley – it's different when you're a 1,400-yard receiver and you do something to violate the gambling policy as opposed to a, a cornerback who might be a starter. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's a tough situation for him to be in, but one that I'm sure he didn't admit to gambling on his own games and things like that, but there was that statement that seemed like some sort of admission of guilt. So I'm sure he feels um, you know, pretty bad about that situation, and um, we just have to see how it all plays out. He's James Boyd from The Athletic here on The Fan. Uh, we're going to go from Isaiah Rogers Sr. possibly gambling to you gambling. Okay? This is what I want to do. <laughs> if uh, you're given a free roll, right? Like, it's it's not going to cost you any money. Uh, it's like a $500, $1,000, whatever the dollar amount is. It's a free roll. Are you betting on Anthony Richardson being the starter in week one or not being the starter in week one? Oh, man, this is when I feel like, depending on the day, depending on the throw, I could go either way. I would say I'll roll for him. I'll uh-huh. roll for Richardson to start week one. Um, that's where I would lean. I just feel like for him not to start, he would have to really be struggling with the playbook. And, to, and, and the gap between him and Gardner Minshew would have to be like an ocean where, I, where you just feel like, okay, there's no way he could handle himself. But if you feel like – you know, he's okay to go out there from a protection standpoint, from a play calling standpoint, things like that, then I don't think that Gardner Minshew is talented enough for you to feel like this guy is going to get us to the playoffs and win us games. It's, it's a little bit different, you know. I think that Gardner is a fringe starter, lower-level starter in the NFL, but, and he knows why he was brought in as well. So I think that you, as long as you feel good about protecting that young guy, his knowledge of the game is okay and, and – the biggest thing for him has always been reps. And so get him out there, get his reps, take his lumps. And, um, you know, you feel good, hopefully, by the end of the year with, with, with whatever progress you've seen. What do you think about this, James, is um, uh, the difference between the first six games for Anthony Richardson or the first six games for Gardner Minshew? Meaning this, who would be facing more pressure? Would it be Anthony Richardson, who's a rookie, and he hasn't had a whole lot of starts or throws in college. Is it that guy? Or is it Gardner Menchu? although he has more playing time in the NFL, he, he knows his window is so short, so small to try to showcase himself, if nothing else, to plant the seed of, hey, I can be a starter in this league. And even though I'm, I understand the handwriting on the wall, I'm going to be backing up Anthony Richardson in the not-too-distant future. He has, let's just call it six games, to prove that he can handle it as a starter in the NFL. Who do you think would be facing more pressure in that scenario? I think it would be Richardson. I think it's always going to be Richardson because of what they invested in him as the number four pick of the franchise, someone who's expected to carry the torch that – 
Andrew Luck once had, Peyton Manning once had, and go way back and say Johnny Unitas and others. So I think that uh, it's Richardson. And I say that because we know what Gardner Minshew is. We don't know what Richardson is. And obviously, to draft him, you want to believe in what he could become. But what you can become goes both ways, right? It's not just, okay, we get him. We know he's going to develop. We know he's going to eventually be a top five player in the league. It could go the other way where it doesn't work out. So I think that there's going to be pressure on him to live up to the expectations and the oohs and ahs that he brings out of you occasionally. I was saying it earlier. He would have the best throw in camp just about every day, mini camp, OTAs, all those days that we were out there. But then the day overall would usually belong to Gardner Minshew because it was more consistent. And so for Richardson, it's all about consistency and can he put it all together and become the player that everyone thinks he can and he's shown flashes of being. Which would surprise you more? Would it be Michael Pittman Jr. not getting a contract extension or Jonathan Taylor getting a contract extension? Oh, man, that's a good one. I would say Pittman not getting one. I think that JT's deal gets done. Um, I think that that is something where he kind of came out and said his piece last week, and that's really his – candidate as Jonathan Taylor really has been I believe since coming into the NFL where he kind of drew that line in the sand saying basically I'm I'm valuable you know pay me like I'm valuable and so we'll see how that shakes out but um yeah I would be shocked if they didn't come to some sort of agreement with JT he's just too good and he means too much to the to the development of Anthony Richardson to let that go by and then with uh Pittman I would expect something gets done on his end as well and I would just be completely shocked again if, if they they couldn't do something with him because you whatever you want to do when it comes to those two players it's for the betterment of the other guy who um is the face of the franchise now whether it's a good thing or a bad thing you want to make sure that you do whatever you can to make life easier for Anthony Richardson I last one for you I want to go to the O line you know, because sometimes there's this tendency to think a down year from the offensive line is just what they are, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it can't be. If we look at a, a wide receiver or a quarterback, you mentioned, you know, uh, Russell Wilson a little bit ago. There's this tendency to think, hey, they could turn it around, they could improve. But I think it's the opposite. The common thinking about an offensive line: if they struggle one year, you kind of think this is just what they are, and they haven't made significant upgrades. Do you think without significant upgrades, we can see a much better performing offensive line this season? I think so because, to me, that unit last year was one of the worst in the league, and you're not asking them to go from worst to first and worst to best. You're just asking them to be average, in my opinion. Now, not as a coaching staff, you want the best, you know, we want them to go out there and do well. But from my perspective, I know that it would be unwise to think that they're just going to jump and be the Philadelphia Eagles where they have the best offensive line and everything works up front. But to ask them to be average, from my perspective, is fair. You know, I think that they're talented enough to do that. And they brought in Tony Sperano Jr., and they have a lot of faith in him to kind of galvanize the troops in the trenches. And so I would expect them to bounce back from last year. A guy like Quentin Nelson, Braden Smith, Ryan Kelly, others, you know, to at least show up and, and be a little more stout up front. James, it was fun hanging out with you. Do you have to hit the cold tub now? 
like an athlete. <laughs> athlete. <laughs> no, nah, man, I, that's what I love about this business. You know, you sit down, you talk, you type, and then, you know, I feel like the, the trade-off is that your body kind of hangs up a little bit uh, or hangs in there a little bit uh, tougher. So I won't have to worry about any injuries and things like that, for sure. No <laughs> doubt. Yeah, it's, a, it's much better that way, for sure. But, hey, man, hope you have a good rest of the day. I'll catch up with you soon, James. All right, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. I want to welcome in Jake Query. Hear him on the morning show. Kevin and Query here on the fan. Uh, Jake, we, uh, we've got numerous bets on your first couple of answers over here, okay? So JMV was doing a spot uh, involving pergolas, okay? Um, first off, you're well-read. I think you'd know, but do you know what a pergola is? I didn't. I had to Google this thing. Well, first off, so JMV is doing a spot on them, correct? Yes. Yep. We just heard it, and I was like, "What in the hell is a pergola?" Now, what was your guess? Let me ask you that first. I didn't have one. I'm just like, I, I didn't get beyond what is that. <laughs> That's all I had in my head. My belief is that a pergola, not unlike a hopa, as I believe is referenced in Meet the Parents, is some sort of a backyard wooden canopy or decorative piece yeah that's exactly right now the second question i was right i'm like you know jake's well read he probably knows what this is now the next question is do you have one my guess is i think the odds are better you don't but i wouldn't be shocked if you do (laughs) well here's the thing brian one would have to have their own yard. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm more of a true. city dweller. Yeah. So I live in I live in a 100 and I believe it's 121-year-old building in a townhouse now. Oh, wow. My girlfriend Shannon has three and a half wooded acres that has wood walk bridges, a canal and, and creek that goes under it, and a fabulous outdoor fire pit. Etc. But I do not believe, uh, as a matter of fact, I shouldn't say I don't believe. It's not like I don't know what's in the yard. There are several wooden structures, but that would not be one of them. So I probably should get a hold of JMV to be able to patronize that of which he's advertising. Absolutely, man. You're moving on up in the world. Holy cow. Does she have a moat around the place? (laughs) We do. We we have a moat mostly just to keep out other radio. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) That's right. That's right. No, actually, you know what? It's really funny because um, her house is in a cul-de-sac, and you would never know. I mean, it's just a, it's a ranch house, but it just so happens that the backyard um, kind of goes into down a hill, and it and it connects to actually her parents live two lots away, but there's no house in between the two, so it's it's actually kind of the whole backyard is attached by one huge wooden privacy fence and it makes up i think all told it's four and a half or five acres pretty awesome oh, wow that's awesome man that's really cool how'd you guys meet what's that how did you guys meet we met um well actually if you really want to know the truth it's kind of embarrassing uh, i was um i was 
doing like a naked and afraid routine, and I was, and I thought it was a remote area in her backyard, and the, <laughs> the police were called. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I worked years ago, Brian. I worked at a cigar store and brought a book called Hardwick's Pipe and Tobacco. Fabulous store. She was a travel agent whose office was down the way from the cigar store, and I knew her peripherally through that. And then a couple of years later. I was at actually Rob Sabatini, who's a great dude that owns Average Joe's, Rock Lobster, and Mine Shaft right there on Broadful Avenue. Um, Rob Sabatini had used to do a party every year called the Front Row Party for the Indy 500, and her office was next door to it. And I knew I was working at Channel Six at the time, and I was there covering it, and saw her there, and we started talking, and I asked her on a date, and uh, that was a long time ago, and wow. she's stuck by me ever since. That's awesome, man. I'm glad to hear that. He's Jake Query here on The Fan with me. Um, Okay, so let me shift gears on you. Uh, No pun intended, because I'm going to ask you an IndyCar question. I swear to you that was not a pun. It was just a random occurrence there. But what is the craziest thing you've seen while covering an IndyCar race? And I just ask you this because we had recent fisticuffs going on there. I'm just curious, when you are either at the Indy 500 or any other race, what is something that was a wow moment for you? Well, are we talking amongst the participants or in the crowd? Because those anything. are totally different. Answers. Totally anything. Well, the craziest thing I ever saw, I won't say the name of the venue. I don't want to get anybody in trouble or whatever else. But uh, I was at a race once where there was a large crowd that I needed to get through. I saw two guys carrying a stretcher, and I thought, well, they're parting the crowd because people were letting them through. They were EMTs. So I used I, I kind of followed them to get in their wake so that I could get through the crowd because I had to get to the other side. Then, of course, naturally, the rubberneck Remy comes out, and I'm like, well, i got to see at least like where they're going. And it was to a guy who was basically passed out, and they immediately started pumping his stomach. And I asked somebody, I'm like, what happened there? And they're like, that guy is absolutely crazy. He just bet that other dude over there five bucks that he couldn't bong a fifth of Jack, and he did it. Oh, my gosh. So that was something. Um, I mean, I've seen some stuff for sure, but from a racing standpoint, aside from the obvious, and I think people know, you know, I've been involved, unfortunately, in the radio broadcast of two very tragic events. I know that's not what you mean. Um, Sure, yeah. The craziest thing I saw was in, I think it was in, I can't remember if we were in New Hampshire or Watkins Glen, but there was an incident along Pitt Road. I was working the pits. It was 07 or 08. And I can't remember. I remember it was, I think it was Sam Hornish Jr.'s father. And I want to say Tony Kanan hmm. got into like some altercation. And then the next thing I knew, like a, a team security guy and the dad of one of the drivers were like in, in a fisticuff. And it like somebody, it was really one of the more impressive body slams I've ever seen. Wow. And I'm standing there like with my microphone and we're live on the air on the radio network. And I'm like, I don't know if I should put my mic in here and capture all this. And it was like the lead story on sports. The best part about it was that night is IndyCar was still broadcasted by ESPN. So they got a lot of sports center play and they're showing this. I think Michael Andretti was involved or he was trying to play peacemaker. And I'm standing there. The best part about it is like on the videotape, there's like five people. The four people fighting and then jackass me with some big fire suit on, like holding my microphone in the middle of it. You know, I mean, you just never know what you're going to see. But that was, um, you know, the Power Dixon thing this, this weekend was interesting. It was fun, uh, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm glad, obviously, neither of them was hurt. But um, I was almost, I hate to say this because I don't want to sound like I'm trying to be Vince McMahon, but 
I was almost disappointed on Sunday morning in the, the pre-race stuff when Dixon and Power were joking around about it. Oh, I yeah. Glad for it because they're both really good dudes. They're both mega, mega talents and, and arguably, you know, the, maybe the two best of our generation in open wheel racing. But, you know, I was thinking, guys, man, if you're getting along, that's cool. But wait till after the race to let people know it. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Don't let, don't let people know this is solved just yet. That That was my first thought. By the way, I also should tell you, because I do owe you an apology. When I was a kid growing up in Steinmeier on the northeast side of Indianapolis, mm-hmm. there was there was a family in my neighborhood, and the 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 dad of the family was a, a fairly prominent guy locally, and his wife became a, a local politician, school board member, that kind of thing. And they were pretty prominent on the north side of town, very well liked, very nice people. And their last name is spelled the exact same as you, but it's pronounced Noe. Oh wow! Okay, mental block for me forever. So every time I see your name in spelling, and and professionally speaking, I regret that error. And I do so from a personal standpoint as well, because my last name is Query, but it's spelled Q-U-E-R-Y, which is a very slippery slope. Uh-huh. So, so I can appreciate and respect the sensitivity one would have of their last name being mispronounced. And by calling you Noe on the air once, I, I do apologize to you. And I promise you that it was with um, totally like legitimate intention and origin. Oh, it's all good, man. I appreciate that. It's totally fine. But uh, that's cool of you to say. How about this, too? One more on IndyCar racing, because I've gone to a lot of NFL stadiums. I only have a handful to check off the list. But in terms of IndyCar racing, is there a venue? Is there an area where you would highly recommend it and say, man, if you haven't been there, you really need to go sometime? That's a great question, Brian. And I'll tell you what, it's really hard for me. Here's what's funny. You know, I've now broadcasted. I, I actually am lame enough that I looked this up the other day. I think yesterday was my 233rd race that I broadcast. Oh, now, wow. Yeah. That's not 233 venues, right? Right. But that probably encompasses, I would guess, 25 or 30 different venues over the years. My first 20 IndyCar races I ever attended were the Indianapolis 500. So it's you know you go from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway to anywhere else and you're like this this is tiny you know mm-hmm. that said so I factor in a lot with that question I mean the environment the fan base the the overall the beauty of the area the racing on the track etc the, the the one that I would say unquestionably is a must do is Long Beach now that's mm-hmm. a street course which means that it uses the temporary temporarily they make the course out of the streets of Long Beach California. But it is so embraced by the area. It's historic. It's right there on the on the ocean. It's a huge party in Southern California. If you've never been to Long Beach, it's an absolute must. That would be one of them. Um, I do think that Texas provides great racing on the Oval. It's very, very fun to watch. It's fairly breathtaking the entire time. No question about it. Uh, and then the other one that I would say... St. Pete is a good one just because of the fact that it kicks off the year. It's spring break week. You know, there's a festive feeling about being in St. Pete anyway, especially after coming out of the doldrums of the, of the winter in Indiana from the weather standpoint. So those would be the ones that jump out at me the most. But Road America, where IndyCar was yesterday, is a fabulous venue. It's huge. It's four miles. It's picturesque. It's like having a track in the middle of Brown County State Park. It's pretty cool. And the fans love it, so it's cool. Nice. Uh, let me skip over to the Colts with you. What would you say just – I don't know if you ballpark it statistically or are not stats driven whatsoever. What are your general expectations for Anthony Richardson in his rookie season? 
I think in your rookie season, I mean, there's a difference between your expectation and your hope, right? Your hope sure. would be, I think your hope would be that a guy is able to play. I, I, and this is a challenge for fans, I realize. I think if you look at precedent in this town, basically in this town, since they came over from Baltimore, the Colts have had this experience with a franchise top 10 level. Obviously, the other three were number one overall. But a franchise quarterback taken right out of college. Like, you are their first franchise they're playing for. And it would be Jeff George, Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck. Now, in Luck's case, Luck is probably the closest to Richardson in the fact that, well, Manning as well. I mean, you had a schedule that was favorable. You know, the Colts, the Colts didn't organically get the number one pick when they took Jeff George in 1990. They traded for it, so their schedule was a little challenging. But I think what if you look at those three guys – you know, Manning was so unique because he was so cerebral and he was unflappable in terms of throwing the highest number of interceptions for a rookie quarterback in league history. But he was learning the whole time, and they kept him clean. They kept him healthy. And they were able to get pieces around him. They were able to get him a receiver that year in Torrance Small that kind of became a comfort level for him. Harrison was hurt. But if you look at Luck, you know, everything fell into place for them in Luck's rookie year. But the the other thing that he had, again, Reggie Wayne, he had that safety net. He had that guy that kind of was somebody he could lean on a little bit. So I think for Richardson, what you've got to do is keep him clean like they did with Peyton. I think you've got to get him a safety net receiver, probably Pittman is who that's going to be, to keep him comfortable. I think the tight ends become very important as well because you've got to have that guy that you can kind of dump off to so that you're not in the pocket too long that just becomes that comfort level. And I think that's, you know, Ken Dilger was that for Peyton as a young player. I think that's going to be important for them to find somebody like that for him aside from just Pittman. But then the other thing is just, you know, with Jeff George, poor Jeff George was just rattled. You know, the line was so bad. He could never get his footing out from underneath him. And, and I, and, you know, he was running different off, offensive schemes, and they were, you know, you got Bob Ursay calling plays from the press box. It was just a total disaster. So long-winded and circuitous answer for you would be keep him healthy, but kind of keep it simple, mm-hmm. and don't allow him to – don't expect and place too much on him and allow him to go at his pace. And that's a tough thing for fans because fans want wins. Wins yeah. will come in time, but you got to have that baseline first. Yeah. Do you think with all that said, does that tend to point to he's starting week one or let's give it a little bit of time? That's such a good question. I I, I think I don't know that that we nor they know that answer yet. I think that answer comes probably late in camp once you really see like what his competence level is. Mm -hmm. I just don't think like if you're teaching somebody how to drive a stick shift and you take them to the to the Kroger parking lot and they're learning how to drive the stick. You don't let them go on the road until they've been able to get like at least through fourth gear without stalling it, right? Yeah. And so, you know, even even if you know the car's jumping around a little bit, like you've got to get some stability to know that there's a comfort level through the basic shifts of the gears to go back to that term. So I think that they don't know that until they get probably through a few preseason games to find out how confident he is in his reads, in his checkdowns. And then they, they, I think they only let him go once they feel like he has that confidence of the first couple of gears. If he doesn't, then you, you don't let him go, I don't think. Because I think we've seen too many young quarterbacks, quite frankly, that get ruined by having their confidence shattered, and there's just no coming back from that. I mean, ask David Carr, right? They're, yeah. We've seen it with guys where they start out and they look great, 
and then I'll, you know, Rick Meyer is a good example from your neck of the woods. I mean, mm-hmm. Rick Meyer was a guy that had an unbelievable, you know, he was right there with Drew Bledsoe as a rookie. I mean, he was 1A and 1B. And by the time he's in year two or three of his, of his career, he's on his way to becoming a journeyman because they just never really, he had no stability around him. And, and, and you get fool's gold a little bit there in the beginning, and I think he was rushed in too early. So I think that's a, I don't know that anybody knows that answer. And I think that answer only comes once they've seen enough and then they're able to make it and they've got to stick by whichever way they go with it. Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer right there, Jake. Well, hey, man, it was good to talk to you, and uh, I'm glad that we covered the spectrum over here. You know, we got, I cannot say it right, pergolas. Uh, we got IndyCar in there. We got some Colts. I feel like we're highly productive today. You? I mean, I would agree. Basically, just think of it this way. The easiest way to think of it is think of me sitting in the backyard under a canopy with my old neighbors, the Noe's, and a guy who just belonged to fit the jack, but dropped the E off their last name, and we got it all in cups. I Yeah, man, we covered a lot of ground, man, but uh, it was good to hang with you, Jake. I hope you have a good rest of the day, and, and we'll catch you tomorrow morning, man. All right, sounds good. I appreciate it. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. We're going to welcome in Alex Golden, covers the Pacers. Setting the Pace podcast here on The Fan with us. Alex, I'm going to get to the Pacers, but man, I uh, I think every radio host has this like terror and panic of like, did I take too big of a bite before we're back on the air again? You know what I mean? And I oh, just yeah. had a massive handful of Cheez-Its. Are you a Cheez-It fan yourself? I, I won't lie. I had Cheez-Its earlier today. So yes, I am a Cheez-It fan. Man, that's awesome to hear. I feel like we're bonding already, Alex. And here's the thing, man. I I saw it was a bowl game. It was a college football bowl game. And Dan Orlovsky was doing color of the game. I think it was the Cheez-It Bowl. And he mentioned, he was like, yeah, I found out. They told me, you don't say Cheez-Its. It's like technically incorrect. You would have to say cheese it. But I'm like you. I put the S there. I, I can't mm-hmm. I can't go singular cheese it. It just sounds wrong to me. Yeah, cheese it sounds like one. Cheese it sounds like multiple. Yeah, right. Like so we're just supposed to go cheese it? It's a little bit like saying I think you're supposed to say is like the Miami Heat is heading into game five or whatever like that. But it sounds better to say the Miami Heat are heading into game five. Like, that's the way you would normally talk. Yeah. <laughs> right? No, I get it. I get it. Yeah. English language is very confusing sometimes. It is. It's crazy. Crazy. We make our own rules over here, Alex, is what we're going for here. So the Pacers, <laughs> let's turn our attention to them. Within reason, what do you think would be ideal for the Pacers in their first pick come Thursday? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think that if they can get one of Jairus Walker or Taylor Hendricks at number seven to, to find someone that could be the long-term starting power forward, that is probably the most realistic and most ideal outcome for Thursday's draft for the Pacers. But, uh, you know, everybody wants to swing for the fences. Neither of these guys really seem like swinging for the fences for me. 
I think they're both very good players, very good complementary players, and I'm I'm excited to see what both can become in the league, but I don't see all-star potential in either of these two. I feel like these are guys that are more solid role players on good teams, so uh, that's kind of where I'm at. I just think that makes the most sense based on everything we've heard. It feels like if you're looking at trading up, if you're looking at trading out, you're just giving up a lot of uh, – potential assets to, to make these moves. And I just don't know if the Pacers are there yet to, to do that. So I think at seven, one of those two guys makes the most sense. Do you think there's an Anthony Richardson type basketball player in this draft? Meaning the Colts quarterback, he goes fourth overall and he's got this boom bust potential where he's got great, you know, gifts to work with but he's got limited experience and we don't know which way it's going to shake out it might not be a carbon copy all across the board with everything that i mentioned but is there a player that has a lot of raw talent but if it's realized it's going to be great if it's not realized it's going to be a bust do you see anybody along those lines yeah that's a great question i mean I don't know if there's anybody that has less experience like that. That's the one thing with Anthony Richardson, like just a little bit of experience. But I would say both the Thompson twins kind of fit that mold uh, just because they were two guys that nobody really got to see a lot of. Overtime Elite is very new to a lot of people. Probably a lot of people don't even know how to watch it. Um, so you're, you're watching a different league and stuff like that. And they do a great job of trying to get their guys ready for the next step in their careers, whether it's the NBA draft, going to the G League or uh, overseas, whatever that might be. But, yeah, I think both Amen and Asar Thompson are in that in that mold because they could be boomer bust. It's just uh, we've only heard great things about them as people off the floor, and I think that uh, speaks volumes to who they could become as players. Um, someone that might be a little bit more in the, in the know is a guy like Gigi Jackson. He's the youngest player in this draft. Didn't have a great year at South Carolina in terms of uh, stuff that happened off the off the court, but he's a very young kid. His father's a preacher. I think that he's got a lot of potential as a player, and he's super raw, super young. But you get him in the right infrastructure, I think that this is a guy that could be a be a steal of the draft come four or five years from now. He's Alex Golden, covers the Pacers, setting the pace podcast, joining us here on the Fan. How about, I was talking about this earlier in the show, being interesting. Don't get me wrong, Alex. I want to see the Pacers win. That's the primary focus. But secondarily, if I'm going to a game, if I'm watching the games on TV, and there are a bunch of them each season, I want to be captivated. I want to be seeing an entertaining product. In terms of entertainment value, do you see a player that you think is more entertaining than the other guys around the range of where the Pacers are picking? Mm. Um, I mean, if I'm going to answer this question, honestly, probably not, but I think Cam Whitmore probably fits that, mm-hmm. uh, that question the best because this is a freak athlete that can do some crazy things. I don't know if his fit would be ideal with the Pacers with who they already have on the roster, but I think that, Seeing the highs of Cam Whitmore, you're going to be like, oh, my God, this dude's a freak. He's an incredible athlete. He's better than I thought he was. And I think that his playmaking was better in high school than it was at Villanova. And that's kind of been one of the knocks on him is he's not a good playmaker because he didn't show any of that, really. I think he averaged like .7 assists at uh, Villanova. So that's where people are kind of skeptical about him long term, like especially next to a guy like Matherin because he doesn't have a high assist to a high assist uh, rate rating there. So uh, 
I just I feel like Cam Whitmore is going to be one of those guys. Like, if he goes to Detroit at five, I think that Pacer fans are going to be having nightmares for a while because the trio of uh, Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, and Cam Whitmore could be lethal in like two to three years. And they've got Jalen Duren as well. I mean, if Detroit's able to get him at five, I think that's going to be very scary for the Eastern Conference because he's got that potential. He's got that dog in him. He's got that it factor. Uh, so I think he'd be one of the most entertaining prospects if, you know, the Pacers were able to get their hands on him. I get nervous, man, when I see some of these prospects and it's like, okay, this dude, take Taylor Hendricks, for instance, elite defender, could become a reliable second scorer. And I'm like, oh, okay, all right, I'm listening. And then there are other, you know, like uh, you look and it's like, oh, this guy, elite defender, versatile, strong. He doesn't shoot it that great. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Run this not shooting it so great thing by me again. Uh, do you feel the same way when you're evaluating these players and someone isn't that great on the offensive end? I think shooting-wise, I get a little bit worried about players just because we've seen how many times in the playoffs in different scenarios where – Guys that can't shoot the basketball, they get played off the court. Even really good players, it's like, we're not even going to guard this guy. So now we're playing four on five when we're on offense because the other defense is just helping out, taking, trying to take away other advantages that we might have by leaving the X player open. So that's, that's one of the big concerns I have with some of the guys. Like, you know, Jairus Walker is one of those guys I do have concerns, and I feel like maybe I'm overvaluing uh, shooting because, you know, it, it's one of those NBA – like they prioritize shooting so much and put such a big emphasis on it that it's kind of like ingrained in your head. Like, okay, we got to have shooters because this Pacers team for a while with Sabonis and Karis LeVert, they didn't have any shooting with those two guys really. So it was kind of like, okay, these guys can score, but they can't shoot. And then they were liabilities on the, on the defense too. So uh, that was not a good prop. That was not a, a good combination there of those two guys. But yeah, I just think overall, Guys that can put the ball in the basket, that's great. But I think shooting to me is something I really value and something I prioritize a lot. And so that's why, like, Taylor Hendricks makes so much sense because mm-hmm. shot just right under 40% from three last year. I think he averaged, like, 16 to 17 points a game. And, you know, he's a rim protector as a four. He can play a little bit of small ball five. He can guard up and play, guard against threes as well. So that, to me, is why I'm a little bit more intrigued by him. But – um, he's still pretty raw talent, so it's going to take some time, and I wouldn't expect those numbers to just happen right away when he comes into the league, and I think that's the hard thing is just being patient and not getting your expectations too high for a guy. You know, uh, Jimmy Butler was picked 30th overall, and I'm not asking you to find another Jimmy Butler at that point because the Pacers are picking 26th and 29th. What I will ask is, what do you think the game plan might be? Do you see them picking two players or do you see him packaging both picks and moving up a little bit higher yeah i think that would be the goal is to package those picks and move up in this draft i think that they would even be intrigued by adding a player potentially to move up even higher if there's somebody out there that makes a lot of sense like we've heard rumblings that dallas could trade their pick at 10 uh the pelicans could trade their pick at 14 I think that there's even some speculation that OKC could trade their pick at 12 and, you know, the Lakers have picks up. And there's a lot of people in that, like, 10 to 18, 19 range that I think make a lot of sense. But when you start getting into the 20 and beyond, a lot of these teams are uh, have traded these picks to other teams, like the Pacers have the Cavs and the Celtics pick. I know that the, the Blazers have an additional pick. The Nets have two picks. 
So it's one of those things where it's like, okay, uh, the Pacers, if they really want to move up, is 26 and 29 enough? I don't think it necessarily is unless you look at a team like the Lakers who could be up against the cap that say, okay, well, we'll – you know, we'll trade you 17 for 26 and 29. That way we can add a couple more guys to our roster and not have to worry about having high salaries on them. So that is uh, one advantage point there of having those two later picks is uh, you could trade that to a team that needs, you know, cheap contracts. So that's one of the teams that I've been keeping an eye on. I think Golden State could be in the same boat as uh, the Lakers as well in terms of wanting to get a couple more cheap contracts to fill out the rest of their roster. But don't be surprised if you see teams like Boston, teams like the Nuggets, uh, and even maybe I'm Phoenix really doesn't have anything anymore now, but teams that you know don't have their first-round pick, could they try to trade to get back into the first round? I think the Knicks are another key candidate for that. Uh, they could trade in, into where the Pacers are picking at 26 or 29, and the Pacers could turn this year's pick into a pick next year and just kind of move those assets further down the road, which also makes a lot of sense because the Pacers, unfortunately, are you know limited with their uh, with their roster space because they have I think 12 guys on the roster already, so they don't have a lot of room to draft all these guys. But um, trading up or trading out completely to me makes the most sense instead of taking all these picks. We're talking Pacers with Alex Golden here. Yeah, there are a lot of people that say this draft is a lot more talented than next year's draft. There are a lot of people that believe that. With that being said, do you expect a lot more wheeling and dealing? We normally see trades freaking galore, as you well know, in the NBA draft. Do you think we're due for an uptick if a lot of franchises view it that same way, where this is the talent-rich draft and next year's not so much? Could we see even more movement? No, I, I totally agree with that. I think with the new CBA coming into place as well, teams are going to try to take advantage of things. While we do usually see a lot of movement on Thursday's draft night every single year, there's a lot more smoke than what actually usually happens. I end up usually walking away a little bit disappointed based on all the rumors that we hear. Maybe like 10% of them actually happen or, or come close to it. So I think this year you'll probably see more close to like 30 40% of those rumors come true just because there's so much to, to be done before the new CBA kicks in. And I think a lot of these teams are trying to find ways to, to figure things out because they still don't know what the new CBA's, CBA is going to be. They're going basically off of a sheet they were given for kind of like projections. So that to me is why I think things are going to get crazy. And you have to remember, a lot of these teams all feel like they're in contention. I think the only team like right now feels like they're not trying to win is Washington after they traded Bradley Beal to the Phoenix Suns. So mm. – all of the other 29 teams in the league are probably looking at ways to try to improve their roster. And with the draft, like you said, not being as glamorous next season, this is a perfect draft to try to trade back into with so many teams having multiple picks like Utah, like Indiana, like Portland, like Brooklyn. Uh, I just think this is a great opportunity for those teams that have all these picks to, to figure out ways to continue adding uh, more assets down the line as well. So, yeah, I think you're going to see a very busy Thursday night, which is always exciting because the NBA just, they know how to take uh, the drama and run with it. I'm really curious, man. Like, when you look around the league, so many interesting teams, storylines. Like, what did the Blazers do? Did they move Dame? We heard the rumors with Zion going. Now he's expected not to go. OKC, and they have 97 first round picks. Did they get aggressive? Did they go crazy in this year's draft? Which team, with all that being said, do you find the most compelling where the storylines are just that interesting to you? 
Yeah, I mean, Portland's obviously an easy one just because there's so much speculation. Like, do they pick Brandon Miller or Scoot Henderson at pick number three? Do they trade three and, and try to get a talent to help them be more of a playoff contender? Do they trade Dame and, and do what Washington did and kind of just say, hey, we're going to take pick three, we're going to trade Dame and see what assets we can get for him. So they're a team that has multiple different directions that they could go. Uh, OKC, like you said, they do have a ton of picks, so it's very interesting to see how they could use all those picks because I think they're ready to win now. But, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think if there's another team that makes a lot of sense in this. I think Toronto is another team to keep an eye on because it's been kind of reported multiple times that, oh, they could rebuild, they they could buy into this roster, but, you know, Van Vliet's a free agent, their starting point guard. Uh, Pascal Siakam, he's on the, his final year of his contract. OG Ananobi, uh, he's got a player option for next year. If the Raptors decide, hey, we're going to run it back with this core, well, is is Van Vliet going to be there? Is Gary Trent Jr., who's also a free agent, going to be there? Those two guys could be out. And then you've got to think about, okay, Siakam could leave after the season's over and go sign with a new team, and OG Ananobi could opt out and, and find a new team as well. So if the Raptors are bullish and want to try to run it back, it could bite them in the butt if they don't take advantage of these assets being hotter than they've ever been. Um, and that, to me, is why I'm just keeping such a close eye on what's happening there because they have a lot of great players that could help teams. And if they're unwilling to move them and embrace a rebuild, they could end up losing all those assets for nothing next year, which I think would be just a, a bad look on Toronto's uh, front office because they got Kawhi Leonard basically for De- DeMar DeRozan and Jakob Pertl, and it didn't seem like a great trade at the time. Uh, for the Spurs, it was an okay trade for them, but it got the Raptors a championship, and I think since then they've been hanging on to that trade thinking we're going to get the same kind of value, and that's just not the case. So I just feel like Toronto, Portland, those are your two main teams to watch now that Washington trade of Bradley Beal. But other than that, I think a lot of the other teams are kind of just waiting for those dominoes to fall. Okay, final, final one. Real fast, I have to know. Yeah. In terms of your favorite snack, are you Team Cheez-It or Team something else, Alex? Well, what's actually hilarious is we did, me and my friends, we did a podcast, uh, and we did a snack bracket. And mm. in the salty region, <laughs> Cheez-Its did win. Ah, yes! I will say this. Uh, for some reason, pretzels got put in the healthy section. Oh, and, wow. Uh, Dots pretzels was uh, one of the category, one of the one of the choices there. And believe it or not, Dots pretzels actually won. So I'm a big Dots pretzels fan. I don't uh-huh. know if you've had Dots or not, but yeah. they are fantastic. It's a lot different than a Cheez-It. Um, I, I think it was pretty close for me between those two. Um, but, yeah, and the Nutty Bar was also in that uh, – that final four and i'm trying to think what the fourth one was but uh yeah those were the three that i remember the most do you remember the regions i have to know that there was the salty region and what else yeah there was a salty region there was a healthy oh okay the other one was cookies that's what it was so it was cookies (laughs) uh little debbie's versus hostess and then we had uh the salty and then we had the healthy so yeah i think the cookie that one was oreo so obviously that makes sense but uh, you know, I like an Oreo. I'll never turn one down, but it's not like I usually seek out Oreos. But if I see Cheez-Its or Dots pretzels, I'm uh, I'm seeking them out. And the Nutty Bars, I mean, it's hard to turn down a good Nutty Bar. Those are pretty fantastic. You know, I think highly underrated, doesn't have the brand recognition of Oreos, Pecan Sandies. Tremendous cookie. Okay. Tremendous. I, 
That is one that I've never had before. Oh, you so. gotta, you gotta indulge. Gotta go. I'm telling you, highly exactly. recommend him. Okay, yeah. uh, I'll take your word on that. We seem to be pretty in sync with our snack choices. So. <laughs> that's, that's right, Pecan man. Sandies is on my radar. You gotta get him. I'm telling you. Like next time we talk, I hope that you have taken my advice, and I'm hoping it changes your world. Those are my expectations. Uh-huh. All right. Well, uh, we'll see. and uh, I'll make sure that I do try to try them. I'm not sure when I'll talk to you again, but uh, uh, whenever we do, I'll make sure that I have had one before. Then I'll try to have one within the next week or so. That sounds great, man. Appreciate that. All right, Alex. Good stuff, man. Have a good evening. I'll catch you later. All right, man. Thanks for having me on. We'll, t- we'll talk soon. 